and it's film reviews night tonight. We are at the Hugh Lane Gallery, live from the Hugh Lane Gallery tomorrow night as part of the Dublin Book Festival. Louise Kennedy, Wendy Erskine, John Francis Flynn, Jess Vahey, all will be with me there for a, a wonderful evening's entertainment, I hope. But in the meantime, that means that we will give you our film reviews a night early. The untimely death of Chadwick Boseman in 2020 cast doubt on the future of the Black Panther series of movies. So does Black Panther Wakanda Forever justify making a sequel at all costs? Ashling Trinyelov, or Clouded Reveries, celebrates the life and work of the poet and writer Dirin Nigrefa. And the band Iranian actor-director Jafar Panahi releases his latest film, No Bears, with me in studio to discuss this week's releases, Carol Doherty and Donald Clark. And we will begin with Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, and in, uh, really, we're, we're talking Black Panther itself, the, the original, or the first, I suppose, released back in 2018. It wasn't just really another Marvel superhero movie, Cara. There was there was a little bit more at play. Give us a sense of the impact that that film made in 2018. It was the first time that we've ever seen a depiction of a not just a black superhero on screen, but the the kingdom that T'Challa, the Black Panther, comes from is Wakanda, the the most advanced technologically and scientifically country in the entire world. And it was the first time that we're seeing this representation of black people in this incredible situation of power. And the the representation, the diversity had such an impact. This film has become the ninth highest grossing film of all time. And it really brought a new dimension to what superhero films can be and continues to do so. Because really the the impact of of it is is seen so often. And yet we still, I mean, uh, even recently, uh, The Woman King, a film like that Mm. was made as a result of Black Panther. So it, it opened a lot of doors and uh, definitely time to, to shine a lot more diversity in films like this. And certainly to Egg Donald that 2018 film uh, had quite an impact purely in, in, in those terms alone apart from the quality of the p- film itself. Then we had the demise of Chadwick Boseman. Uh, how, how much of a doubt did that throw, throw over the franchise and how did they go about kind of rebooting it in the way they inevitably had to do for this film. Well, I can't look inside Kevin Feige's mind and the entire mm. Marvel universe uh, now run by Disney, but I would suspect that it didn't put it in any jeopardy at all mm. <laughs> in the sense that um, the last one made so much money. And also, we should point out, got a Best Picture nomination, which was pretty extraordinary for a superhero film. Um, I think they were always going to make another one. I mean, they had the good wishes of the family and yeah. there was no objections to it, so there's no reason that they shouldn't. Uh, what it means is that the new film, to a certain extent, has turned into an origin story, as they say. Now, I think we're supposed to be uh, cautious about revealing whose origin story it is, because okay. uh, we're left in a situation where it begins with um, uh, with the Queen Mother, which is um, not the um, uh, late um, um, grandmother of King Charles, but it's Angela Bassett at, um, in all her glory, who I think, in a film that, to my mind, is a little bit sluggish and wanders around the place a bit and fails to make sense of its various scenarios that are mm. flung at the wall. I think Angela Bassett is the standout character. She's terrific as the senior figure in Wakanda who is left to supervise um, the uh, chaos that's left after the death of Black Panther, of uh, of the of the of Black Panther within the film, which they handle I think quite well. I mean it begins with a prologue um, he has died of some, I think, unnamed illness. I don't think it ever comes out what they think he's, what they suggest he's died of. There in mourning, with a funeral, then yeah. we cut to the Marvel logo in silence with um, Chadwick Boseman 
appearing in the gaps and letters, which I seem to be a very respectful that's very, that's way very of, nice, tastefully of done to, to, so, to, Then to. the film. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, then okay. the, I mean... What are we doing with our lives, Sean? Honestly, this we're at this stage now where this is the biggest film of um, of the season, and it's not terrible by any manner of means. Don't get me wrong, but I really had the impression of flailing around for two and a half okay. hours to try and make sense of a frayed um, uh, script, which they had finished the draft before uh, Chadwick died, and they haven't quite made sense of what Dad, they got Dad left. What to do after that? Uh, um, g- give us a sense, if you would, Cara. Um, Donald has given us where Queen Ramonda, the Angela Bassett, fits in. Princess Shruri, then played by Letitia Wright, uh, and the oceanic demigod Namor, who's about to be a part <laughs> of the clip that I'm about to play. Maybe you could give me the kind of setup that involves the two of them. Uh, Shuri has, is a genius and she's a scientist and she was always a ray of light but without her brother she she is so full of grief that she's just she's angry um, and she has this encounter with Namor who long story short uh, Wakanda is a land of vibranium this incredible rare element now that the kingdom is without a, a protector mm. other countries and people are thinking oh we can get our hands on vibranium uh, there is a source of vibranium and it's connected to Namor's kingdom and because of this he's really annoyed that the Wakandans let the rest of the world know that there is vibranium out there so he comes up with an idea a sort of a loose idea that perhaps the two could align together Okay, but, I, I yeah. think that, that kind of gives us um, a, a sense of where this clip is about, is about to bring us uh, with, with the three involved and it's all to protect themselves against imperialism of what country we shall discuss afterwards. Let's have a listen to the clip. Stop! Right there! Who are you? And how did you get in here? This place is amazing. The air is pristine. And the water. My mother told stories about a place like this. A protected land with people that never had to leave that never have to change who they were. What reason do you have to reveal your secret to the world? I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. So there we go. Uh, Queen Ramonda, Princess Shruri and the uh, demigod Neymar, they're all part of setting up the kind of battle that's going to be, I'm guessing, Donald, the battle that will be raging for two and three quarter hours. Is that what you said? Pretty much. I mean, they have introduced a character here who I used to really like in the Marvel comics, uh, Neymar, Neymar, the Submariner as he was called. Actually been around in Marvel. I didn't realise I looked it up since the 40s. Um, But was a great kind of anti-hero and in the Marvel comics of the 1970s, and he creeps in and does his thing. Now, look, I find a lot of the, lot of the, the Black Panther universe slightly peculiar and slightly... And I find a great deal of it doesn't quite cue with what they're attempting to set up politically. Here we have this utopian society, essentially, that existed um, unmolested in Africa for many, many years until it opened itself up in the last film. But at the same time, it is an absolute monarchy. Mm. So you had this scene early on where 
Angela Bassett goes to, I don't know if it's actually the United Nations, but it's something like the United Nations, and the Americans are there and the French are there, and she sort of storms in and starts kind of yelling at them. It's all over the distribution of vibranium. How can you take this stuff seriously? I know. And, it's, it's, it's and even the title. I'm kind of thinking, okay, I get this. Like, you know, these, she's representing the oppressed peoples, and they're the oppressed colonizers, but at least they're democracies. Okay. And here comes this representative <laughs> of an absolute monarchy, which he put forward as utopian. Utopian society. So, so Cara, then, uh, do we need to put those the politics to the one side? Do we need to watch the action and get involved in the effects if they are if they they merit that? Is there is there something else to maybe entertain our minds in uh, this film? My nerdy brain has to just say that the 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 the, the royal throne, the crown, isn't just automatic. The whoever is to be the new king or queen must fight against oh, yeah, the tribal leader, the, the Jabari. Oh yeah, fight in the river. Yeah, I forgot about so that. So and that you know, so it's not it's not automatic. You don't just get the crown just because your your mommy you had to beat before. You have to beat the to somebody before yes. you get in the river. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. So you know, there's more to it than just that. Um, and I mean, they this they are an incredibly powerful country, but at the same time, they have been attacked for their vibranium. So. Queen Ramonda going into the UN and staking her claim is basically pointing out that just because there's no king there does not mean that they're a kingdom that, that can be walked over. So I'm completely on board with her going in there and, and shouting, <laughs> shouting the odds. Mm. But yeah, there is a lot more to it as well. We're introduced to, to Riri, who is um, a remarkable character who we'll see a lot more. She's going to be, uh, in a, she's Ironheart. She'll be in a, a spin-off series. This is the Dominic uh, Thorne character. Yeah, Dominic Thorne. And she is this remarkable young woman who's got the smarts of Tony Stark and Shuri but doesn't have the money she has no royalty behind her yet can cobble together these remarkable machines right. and and so there's there is yeah there's a lot more there than than um Mr. Clark there. I know he's not a fan, so... <laughs> All right, but it, 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 what about the look of it, Donald? I'm trying to eke e- something out of you that maybe that you, you were happy with. Does it look good? It Did does it- look good. I mean, they, they've they've gone back to that tradition of um, Afrofuturism, which kind of emerged in the middle part of the last century. Mm. You saw it in things like, you know, the cover of Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. That was sort of that sort of imagery, mm. um, which they, they, they did very nicely in the last one. They've got a lot of that going on, which I think does work very well. The costumes are absolutely... Gorgeous yeah. all the way through, um, which also plays in the same the, the same ideas and and also the music. I mean, it's very, all these films are always very well presented. I mean, you do get a certain thing, a certain unease over the last two or three years. That an awful lot of them are even more green screened than they were beforehand because of COVID. Um, but I mean, they're always pretty green screened anyway. But I think visually, it isn't. They're always wonderful kind of packages in terms of getting together yeah. the best professionals in Hollywood uh, and best heads of department to do what they do. And certainly it looks very nice and I do greatly admire what it did with that futurism. yes. So I would, I would admit that, yes, certainly it, it is very well put together in those terms. Oh, there's, there's about 3,000 butts at the end of that <laughs> sentence, however, I'm guessing, and that might be reflected in the star rating that you're going to give it. I'd give it two and a half. I mean, it's a great grand experience that a lot of people will really really enjoy but seem to be absolutely empty at its heart to me all right i think you may have had a better time for the for uh, two hours and 40 minutes i think um cara was was that an issue or did it work for you at that length it does lag and there's a lag in the middle it could easily do with the chop and as mm. much as we need to know about the new Namor and his kingdom it, it is it is slightly over overdrawn but you know Ryan Coogler had a huge amount to deal with the, the, the grief the, 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 the in the cast they saying goodbye to the character themselves and mm. 
trying to figure out who will be the next Black Panther and who will rise up. So, I mean, there's a lot to juggle. And um, I have to say, for me, there was a huge amount of heart. Yes, it does lag in the middle, but um, I think it's a beautiful study in grief as well. And I am going with four stars. You're going with four. I I should mention, of course, um, Letitia Wright, we were speaking with Frank Perry about his film Aisha last night. It's tomorrow night that it that it opens the yes, the Cork Film Festival, Festival, which is another very strong festival. The last few years, they've really got a great program. Yeah. So I'll yeah, keep an eye on that. We've had some great guests um, from from that festival over the week, and indeed more coming in the, in the following in next week or later this week as well. So um, and Letitia Wright playing a very different part, I'm guessing, in Aisha than she plays. Well, I know in Aisha mm. than she plays in in this. All right, let us move on then to a num a film number two this evening. Evening, Ashling Trinielov, or Clouded Reveries, directed by Kieran Cormac, and uh, featuring, in fact, only featuring only Darren the Grafa. Uh, it, it must be said, the the Irish language poet who started life uh, in the medical profession, but moved towards poetry, um, and she tells us why in in the film. How would you describe what is going on in in this film and how it's presented to us, Cara? So the one the thing that struck me the most is that that Darren Dugui for herself is this sort of ethereal creature that almost, I, I mean, creature with the greatest respect. Mm. She feels like she has come from a poem herself. She uh, she's very considered. Uh, she really thinks it's very measured with every sentence that she says, and she she speaks in such a lyrical way. So when the camera is on her, whether it's in her home now or her grandmother's home in, in Clare, were really drawn into her world. And I, you kind of find yourself really lingering and wanting to know what's going to be the next sentence. She, she's, uh, she's a remarkable woman, as we, we learn, as we travel with her through her, her life. And it is, it is just her, for the most part. It Donald. is. It's quite brave, that, that um, occasionally you see in the shots in Cork City, you'll see figures way in the background mm. kind of wandering around. But essentially, it is just her throughout the entire film. And they hint, I think, quite delicately at the life that, that we're not seeing. You sort of, you cut to pillow shots, as they might say, of toys lying on the floor and you see her folding laundry at various mm. points. But essentially the film is all about uh, her inner life, her inner creative life. It begins with her tapping at the computer and interesting mouthing out the words yeah, as I she goes that, along. I, I thought that was interesting. I mentioned that to Kieran McCormick the other day. Mm. That, did that occur like somewhere in the middle of the shoot? And it's a great opening. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me in yeah. respect respect? I mean, it would. I mean, when you think about it, who would be surprised that a poet, given so much of poetry, mm. is is written to be spoken out loud would mouth out the words yeah. as they Otherwise, write Otherwise Darren told me she also does that for prose she does it for everything, everything. Right. Yeah, you know, but, but it, I mean it's, and I think what, what Cara says is correct they are fortunate in that they've got somebody who is an incredibly impressive looking person on the screen I don't just I mm. don't mean that she's good looking, but I mean, well, she is, but she has a the huge point screen presence. She has yeah. that screen presence, and there's kind of a, a sage like quality to her that works terrifically. Um, to the, and she that ties in so much with what she writes. It gives you such a sense of some of a timelessness that I was almost slightly taken aback when we, at one stage she reads a poem about essentially. The the poet, the person writing yeah. the poem, coming home from a rave as a kid, and and this this stuff about the sound of bass still thumping through their veins. I thought, oh, I suppose she's actually <laughs> did have a life as or yeah. does still. I'm sure I have a life as a young yeah. person connected to to modern 
culture and modern technology because from looking at her, you could, you could convince yourself that she was something from another time, another space. And also the, the type of stories that she tells, it, it is almost as if she's in touch with uh, another space yeah. as well. The, the very opening story, I got her to tell the, the opening story in English on the, on the programme the other night. She told the story of... of how on the night of her grandfather's death she couldn't go to the hospital, but she—that's how—that's kind of the first story we hear, and so it's what um, turned, what made her turn to it's writing. It's fascinating that yeah. somebody can actually pinpoint the point at which they became yeah. a writer. That must uh, be rare. Let's have a listen because I, I think even you know uh, people with Irish will understand it immediately. But her Irish is so crystal clear. There's not a stumble. There's not. There's nothing. She's her delivery is absolutely perfect. Of course, she's a poet. She would know what she wants to say. But here's how she explains how she came to writing poetry. Ask Gaelica. Dairig myato anahin vimea anahu kalesh marghene agus niwan gro kajravajan akro kajisadran choma ach nuravur an klan an gleach an chacht koi glabavosh ilor anahihe Dinu on kina nach merkse kart, verhauen in enti le lana vog, hog lama vach. Scher de harlena, gar og shin grome lumfein, magis grome giri mavaka kar in a holla. Vog me ho uignach, agis vime fuivron. Agus harla gar hanik lina filirta khum drir maralana lina sha imuhyaun arishis arishis arish ela groshe kho ashtakh Sin there in the green Siskana and Ashleen three nail of there in the green there or there in the grave I beg your pardon in the uh, in the film Ashleen three nail of clouded reveries the English translation and and Cara I know I I understand Irish but I think for the, even the most rudimentary Irish you, you get even the way she sounds it out we make I was so lonely she speaks. In a, in a poetic fashion, use as much in Irish. We hear very little English from her, except from her actual works that she's written in English. She has this way of speaking and, and placing emphasis on words that she could actually be talking about making a bowl of cereal, and <laughs> you'd feel moved by it. I yeah. mean, just there. I mean, I was just listening, and it's so meditative, meditative, and I just think it's remarkable that that no word is wasted. Um, you know, it's, she's really is. She is remarkable, um, and I think it's really fascinating to see a documentary like this when she's still quite early in her career. Mm. I mean, normally we see with documentaries about great writers, poets, uh, much later on in their careers as retrospectives so I think it's it's really interesting to see somebody who's in their prime and to see how, how they work yeah she's a fabulous woman Yeah, and, and the other aspect of it is Donald, I mean, when you when you say I'm going to put somebody's inner life on mm. screen that's quite a challenge to set for yourself but it's what Kieran McCormick sets for herself I want to put the inner life of this poet mm. on screen how does she manage with what, what could be a very static undramatic Event. How does she manage that as a, well, as a documentary is, maker? I, I would say it is quite a small film, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean it is quite quite an intimate film. Mm. Um, but they do find images, I think, uh, uh, that very eloquently um, reflect upon and expand upon what we hear her say. How 
on what on how the way in which she talks through mm. her creative process. I mean, there are lovely images, for example, of her in, in what I presume is a medical school or dental school at, um, at the university UCC, yeah. UCC um, looking out of the city, which again seems weird, deserted. Is that notion of like making sure of, of limiting the number the the uh, shots of other human beings to an absolute minimum that it feels it's in this city on her own? Shots like that, I think, um, work very nicely at commenting on and offering footnotes to what you Of course, you asked the question, it helps greatly if you have somebody who is a poet, because yeah. part of the nature of being a poet is interrogating your own inner, your own psyche, interrogating you know, your own conscience, interrogating your own creative processes. So I think you really have a head start with that, yeah. um, in that regard. And, and she's she so is, articulate. Yes, and, she, and you know, she's so open in her work that I assume it required less teasing out than it would with, some, with somebody yeah. who was didn't have that as her career um, to get her to speak about her inner life. Did it work overall for you, Cara? And what kind of star rating are you giving it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was lost in her words and it just a beautiful Cork is so beautifully presented. So uh, anybody from Cork or who's fans of the county will absolutely love to see it presented so beautifully. Uh, a four stars for me again. Yeah, okay. And we better say Claire is presented very well as well. Sorry, yes, of course, I'm Claire. <laughs> we'll never hear the end Sorry. of it. <laughs> there'll, there'll be complaints because she is, she is originally from Claire. But as you say, a lot of it is set in Cork and in and around where she lives uh, right now as well. And overall, from you, Donald? I give it three and a half, which sounds a bit mean, but I say I think... It is maybe a little short, a little narrow in its scope for um, theatrical exhibition. Go and see it in the cinema, certainly, but I, I would give that proviso. All right, OK. That's Acting Three Nail of Clouded Reveries, um, featuring Dirty Negrafer, directed by Kieran McCormack. And finally, then, let us move on to No Bears. Uh, I suppose, Donald, uh, we do need a bit of context for this film, yeah. not least of which is the backdrop to the the director here, Jafar Panahi, if I'm saying his name correctly, playing a version of himself essentially here, isn't he? As he has been for about 10 years now for mm. reasons that we'll get into. I mean, it's. I like what he's been doing the last 10 years. Having said that, no decent person would want anything other than freedom for him uh, for the last decade. He's been suppressed one way or another by the Iranian state and his condition has become a sort of cause celeb. Um, it, 12 years ago, I can remember the first year I was at Cannes when um, uh, Juliette Binoche won Best Actress for a film by another Iranian director by uh, Abbas Kiarostami. She held up a sign saying uh, free Jafar Panahi because that was one of the first times he was arrested. Um, he was then freed. He was then placed under house arrest. Um, he was banned from making films. Um, but he somehow managed to make films nonetheless. Mm. In this, And those constrictions that he put upon himself actually um, gave him a new kind of creativity. That uh, it's just, you know, You're writing a sonnet, you stick to 14 lines, you have a certain rhyme scheme, and that kind of, in itself can trigger a kind of creativity. And in films like um, This Is Not A Film and Taxi, he managed to work within those constrictions and create really imaginative, um, clever films that nonetheless nodded towards the danger and the mm. oppression that he was currently in. Now he's back in prison. Um, he was uh, arrested a few months ago um, in a complicated situation that is very hard for us to discern. And so this film has added uh, poignancy um, for that reason. Um, the film which, which premiered in Venice last year, uh, it perhaps attempts the most complex, most postmodern take on his um, uh, on his imprisonment mm. yet, or on his on his on his suppression yet. He plays himself yet again, uh, directing a film uh, remotely in Turkey from just across the border in a small insular um, Iranian town. There's a great deal of subconscious stuff at the beginning where we see a sequence that turns out to be a scene in that film 
he loses his internet, he gets the internet back, and various other stories creep in, most importantly one about him taking a photograph within the town, which turns out may show um, uh, a gentleman um, having an illicit liaison with somebody who was betrothed to somebody else, and that becomes a bone of controversy. Um, It's difficult with this one, Cara, because there's, uh, my my understanding is that there's quite a blackly comic tone, certainly at the beginning of the film, but clearly we're talking about a, a, a situation here of serious oppression and possibly a man whose life could even be in serious uh, danger here. Uh, what tone is maintained after that? Or does that comic tone, does it stay throughout and does it does it befit the story, the stories that are being told? Yes, there's a, up to a certain point, it is sort of twinged with comedy. He finds himself in this very rural town that ha- or not even a town, it's a village that has no internet connection. And he's he's renting a room from a man called Gabar, who I'm going to say a surname wrong, I'm sure, of, of Ahid Mabasare. And to be honest, he, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't seem completely out of place in the Iranian equivalent of Kilna Scully. Um, he's, a, he's a right character. And there's all these little small things happening in the, 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 the village where at first they, they think that uh, Bahani might be a bit of a spy or he might be this. And on the surface, it, it does seem it's a little bit funny. But you, you realise as it's going along that there's an awful lot more to this and you feel the sense of unease kicking in you know something is going to go wrong you just don't know when and then when you place it in the context of what's happening in Iran right now and you realise that these people all of them have probably risked their life to make this Mm. film um, it just leaves you with this very odd sensation as you're watching it because you just know um, that the, the, the stakes are very high in this and and apart from the the director and actor as he is himself, who else is is important within the story? Or is it essentially is he going to guide us the whole way through it, Donald? Well, it all revolves around him. I mean, when I say mm. it revolves around him, it spins off from him. But, um, you have, I mean, I mean, you have this parallel story within the story in that he is filming a his the film that he is shooting currently remotely from this time in. Uh, Turkey has to do with a couple who are themselves trying to escape mm. from some situation which we obviously don't get enough information on to understand and it transpires that the actors who are playing those characters are also trying to escape and in some sense it looks to like the film has been set up to enable that um, and all that stuff is kind of quite funny and tricksy but you also towards the end you get a sly critique of his own responsibilities towards the close the cast members of the film he's shooting essentially turn to him and ask him to account for his actions may have sharpened their right. their crises. Um, so all a bit self-reflexive, yeah. all a bit metatextual, but Handel, I think, as he always does, with such an imaginative touch, and it's very well acted, I don't think it ever becomes pretentious. He okay. has that light, lively touch. And what does that? how does that translate into stars? I'd give it four, I think. You give it a solid four, and I suppose if, if we're talking about him and his situation, we'll all, we'll all be giving him and his situation five and a, sure. a hope for its resolution, but in terms of the film, that's what we're saying. What are you saying overall on it, Cara? I have agree with Donald there and another four and there's just there's one moment where a female character Zara Mini Cavani gives this uh, speech to the camera and especially considering the situation right there now it is it's it's just one of those hair raising moments um, and it just really shows you that the, you know the power of film um, embedded in, in comedy and all these other things is these powerful moments of reality yeah all right, that's uh, so four from you as well for Jeff Arpanahi and No Bears and Donald Clark and Carol O'Hare also speaking to us this evening about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever and Ashling Three Neil of Clouded Reveries.
When it comes to independent cinema, the screenwriter, director and novelist John Sales is a pivotal voice whose Oscar-nominated work places him among the ranks of America's top filmmakers. He started out in the 1970s writing short stories, novels and eventually screenplays. After writing and directing his debut feature, Return of the Scorsese 7 in 1978, he came under the stewardship of the legendary independent director and producer Roger Corman, who also fostered the careers of people like Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Ron Howard and Peter Bogdanovich. John was an early recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, sometimes called the Genius Grant. He's Oscar nominated for his screenwriting on films, the films Lone Star and Passion Fish, which he also directed. He's also directed music videos for Bruce Springsteen for his hit songs Born in the USA, Glory Days and I'm on Fire. And his latest novel, Jamie McGillivray, The Renegade's Journey, will be published in February of next year. John Sales is in Ireland to take place in the take part in the first ever Dingle Inter International Film Festival this very weekend and he will teach an acting masterclass on Saturday morning November the 12th plus the festival will screen three of his films Amigo The Secret of Rowan Inish and Go for Sisters delighted to have John Sales join us from our studio in Ballyanungall County Kerry County Kerry this uh, very evening John storytelling obviously has been in your blood for a very long time what part of storytelling did it become clear to you really films is where I want to be or is, is it whatever medium the story demands that you still go to? You know, I, I think um, growing up I I liked to read but I certainly saw more TV and movies than I did uh, read books. So that was the kind of first medium that I was, uh, you know, exposed to. I, I also um, I was raised Catholic and um, every Sunday the priest would... Um, tell a story from the, you know, the life of Christ. And after a few years is, oh, I've heard that story before. And then before I actually knew what the words for them were, I realized, oh, that's that thing that we would now call an allegory or a metaphor, mm. um, you know. And uh, so it was interesting that, that, that I think that did affect me first before I even started thinking about movies or writing a book or anything like that. I certainly didn't know how movies were made. I thought the cowboys got together and <laughs> lived it out and somebody brought a camera. Yeah, there was no, there was no acting involved. It was all yeah. happening and somebody was just catching it on, on screen. Um, well, I'm sure that uh, must have changed at a certain point along the way. Certainly by the time you were, were studying and working with R Roger Corman, you were among a, quite a collection of young filmmakers who got your, their starts through him. Francis Ford Coppola, as I said, uh, Ron Howard, Jonathan Demme. How important uh, an influence would you say Roger Corman was on your work and how how did the, he influence you would you say well I, I think just in, in the on the job training uh, I didn't go to film school um, I there weren't many film schools around when I, I, I was of age to do that but I, I it was not something I didn't want to go to school for mm. writing or, or making films um, but if Roger paid you $10,000 to write a movie he was going to make it and so the first three movies that I wrote um, got made and I got to work with the directors and in a couple of cases got to go to the set and play a part, you know, because I also act um, in the, you know, do a cameo part in the movie. Very few writers come out to Hollywood and have the first three things that they wrote get actually made into something. So I, I think I learned a lot about um, the practicalities of making films. 
um, what what costs money and what can you just lick with, you know, a lot of work and cleverness because there was never enough money to make the Corman movies. Um, he never lost a dime because he, he rarely spent one that wasn't needed. But it's interesting that you say that, you know, if, if if Roger Corman said to you, write a film about whatever it was, that he was going to pay you and you knew the film was going to get made. So you were prepared to do that. Was well, Is that a good discipline to learn that, in fact, you may be writing something that is somebody, not necessarily somebody else's vision, but that somebody it's somebody else's idea and they want you to realise it. Is that a, a good discipline to learn that it does, you not have to be sitting around waiting for some great inspiration to hit you? Yeah, I, th- I, I think, you know, because I, I make my living as a screenwriter for hire um, mm. still. And one of the things that was great about working for Roger and one of the reasons all these wonderful directors, you know, Martin Scorsese made his first feature for for um, Roger. Um, he basically said, OK, here's the monster. You know, <laughs> here's how many attacks I want. Make as good a film as you can. Now, you're not going to get any more money than we agreed on, and you're not going to get any more time. But if you can make a great movie out of this, I'm not going to stand in your way, which is very unlike the the studio experience that most people get, where everybody is is kind of lifting their leg on it and continue through the editing process and, and whatever. Roger, um, he cared about what the coming attractions trailer was going to show. And if you had enough to make a, a good trailer in your movie, the rest of it, you could kind of do what you wanted with it. They were only going to play a couple weeks in, you know, inner city theaters and drive-ins. And uh, so they weren't review driven. Um, and so a mm. lot of people got to do really creative work in very basic genre films. You were in a very different place, I would think, when it came to the, the double Oscar-nominated film Passion Fish uh, with Mary MacDonald mm-hmm. uh, playing the daytime soap actor Mary Alice uh, Culhane. Tell us a little bit about how this came about, how that film came about and, and how you were in a position to get it to the point where it was you know, going to be double Oscar-nominated, although I'm sure you didn't know that when you were making it. Yeah, I, I got the germ of the idea. I, I, I have some um, messed up vertebrae in my back and I went to the hospital for special surgery in New York and sitting waiting for my appointment uh, there were four women in wheelchairs all white and the women pushing them were either black or Hispanic and I had been a big fan of the Ingmar Bergman movie uh, Persona and which was kind of a nurse taking care of an actress who had stopped talking and had psychological problems and I said well if there was an American version of Persona that would be it. You know, the the woman in the chair has power because she's white and she has money. The woman who's pushing her has power because she can walk. Mm. And if she wants to park you somewhere because you've been nasty to her and leave you, uh, she can do that. And so that developed into a screenplay. And eventually uh, I was on a rock and roll tour of going to different venues in the South with a bunch of Australian friends. And we we came to to Cajun country in Louisiana and met a guy who had a Zydeco band. And he said, oh, you got to stay at my family's house. Um, And we woke up and there were the trees with a Spanish moss hanging down. And uh, Maggie, my partner and and producer, said this is where we should set that movie about the nurse. Perfect. So the serendipity of the place 
finding yeah. the idea, I sat down and wrote the screenplay. Let's have a listen to a clip uh, featuring Mary MacDonald uh, as that soap star, as a daytime soap actor, Mary Alice Colhane, who has her life changed radically when she's paralysed after being hit by a taxi. Now, she's visited in this scene by two former so-called childhood friends and they're reminiscing on times gone by. I remember when we were here last. Your parents, God bless them, were still with us. Some sort of soiree? A slumber party. Yes, I remember now. Laura Pettibone was there, and Stacy Lee Ellis. And who was that girl? That one with the hair. We all had hair, precious. No, the one with the hair, who we were so awful to. She wore it in that enormous braid down her back like some sort of peasant woman. <laughs> that was me. Oh, May Alice, <laughs> it couldn't have been you. It's a picture I had of Joan Baez. Took me hours to get the same effect. Uh, perhaps I misremember. I'm thinking of someone we just tortured. That was me. I've <laughs> seen there from Passion Fish and John Sills uh, speaking to me about his uh, career as a filmmaker. He'll be part, giving an acting masterclass, in fact, as part of the newly uh, the, the new Dingle International Film Festival. Uh, the, the, the dialogue, John, there is razor sharp, and that is your writing. But given that it is acting masterclasses, that an acting masterclass that you'll be given, uh, giving on Saturday, how, what do the actors bring there to it? I mean, it really does fizz, uh, even without any visuals, it fizzes off the audio. Yeah, well, you, you try to cast really good actors. Um, and, and what I do as a director, directors don't teach people how to act. Um, you direct their talent. So I'm also the writer and editor, and being the writer, I don't want people changing my dialogue and paraphrasing. So I, you know, I may change three lines mm. per movie because, you know, we, we decide there's a better way to say it. Um, but I want to see where the actors go with this. Um, you can do the same scene five takes and do it totally differently. Um, each take. You can you can have the malice come out. You can have it under the surface. You can have it where the person's a little embarrassed by it. You can have the person where they're not embarrassed at all and they're doing it on purpose. Um, and sometimes I'll ask from those and sometimes an actor will come up with something I did not think of at all and it totally changes my concept of the character. And I don't change a line. And so that's really what you ask for the actors yeah. is to inhabit the character and when you get two good actors, Mary, Eliz um, uh, Mary McDonald and Alfie Woodard in this case, um, I would, they have a lot of heavy scenes together. Hmm. Uh, I would kind of act like I was the, the corner man at a boxing match for both of them. And I would take one aside and say, well, this time, if she does that, don't let her get away with that. And then I go to the other one and say, well, this time, I want you to make sure that she hears you when you say this. And the dynamic would change each take. And because they're good actors and they listen to each other and react to each other, the scene would be very, very different each time. And then in the editing, 
I don't even have to use the whole version of any one of those. I can mix and match them. Wow, because that's that's something. You, what you as you describe it there, you really give us those. You know, those three processes, if you like, pre-production, production, and mm-hmm. post-production. You know, which are so vital to to filmmaking. But what you're saying, if I'm not paraphrasing it, John, is essentially if you get enough. In the production phase, when it comes to the pre-production, you can play for as long as Mm -hmm. you like in the editing suite. But can you become overwhelmed with choice at that stage, I often wonder? No, you know, it's it's my favourite part of the process. You're still working with the actors, even though they're not there. Um, good actors who get comfortable with you. And and, and when I say I'm the editor, it's something I I am sure to tell, you know, the actors is, Mm. look, the deal is between you and me. I'm not going to use anything that's going to embarrass you. I'm going to use your best stuff that also serves the story. It's not going to be between you and me and a bunch of people in a studio and a focus group in Milwaukee. <laughs> and and I'm going to recut the movie for that. So so we have some kind of trust. And what that allows the actor to do is, I may say, go over the top this time. You know, I, there's no embarrassment here because if it's embarrassing, it's not going to end up in the film. Yeah. But just try things you haven't tried before. And sometimes you get something that you wouldn't, you know, ordinarily. Yeah. So I guess there's a, there's a touch of the safety of the rehearsal room, albeit that you're on set at that at that moment in time. Yeah. And you unlike so- theater, you know, it's not live. Yeah. Yeah. You so know, you can you can you throw, can the throw stuff it away, away if it's no good. Um, it's a very different film industry that you work in now in 2022 than it mm-hmm. was when you started out in 1978. How much has it changed for the better? How much has it changed for the worse? It, it, for independent filmmakers, it's gotten much more difficult. Um, people really have not come back to the theatres in the numbers to support independent films in small theaters, off Hollywood theaters, non-chain theaters. Uh, one of the reasons, uh, you know, we came to Dingle, uh, invited by John and Roz Hubbard, who, who did our casting for Secret Ronin Ishin, some mm. of, our, of our films. Uh, film festivals are great. You get to come into a, a smaller venue, see movies you wouldn't ordinarily see at home uh, with an audience. Um, and it's a different experience. Um, that is harder and harder to do. There just aren't as many theaters to show off Hollywood movies, non-Hollywood movies as there used to be. So um, filmmaking, because of digital, is cheaper than ever. More people can do it than ever. But if you're going to work with professional actors, um, it's harder to get the movie into a theater or in front of people. Um, and the Really, the business now mostly is these big streaming companies, uh, Amazon or Netflix or whatever, and uh, they do their market research through logarithms that don't always include you. So you can just get left out of the conversation fairly easily. You're happy to work off your own inner logarithm, I'm guessing. Yeah. John, you're in good company, you're in a good location and you're in good company with the John and Roz Hubbard in Dingle. So enjoy your stay at the festival and thanks so much for being with us this evening. Thanks a lot, John. That's uh, John Sales and John is taking part in the Dingle International Film Festival this very weekend, Saturday morning, giving an actor cast, actor's casting masterclass at the Skellig Hotel. It's one of the masterclasses taking place over the weekend. Plus, the festival will screen three of John Sales' film over the course of the weekend. Lots more happening as well, I am sure. And for full information, you can f- visit dinglefilmfest.com.
Bertie and Harme is the collaborative practice of Irish artist Cleana Harme and Belgian artist Philippe Bertie. Their work, Null Punt Walk, looks at aerial imaging, aviation, mapping and landscape boundaries. Two large sculptural maps showing two 1917 airfields, Baldonnell in Ireland and Oostacher in Belgium, devoid of buildings and vegetation, appearing semi-photographic. This type of aerial view is possible because of changing technologies in mapping. These bare maps Maps were created as a space to look at the earth together and reflect on how things might be different and will be part of this year's Tolka Festival of Visual Arts. With me in studio is one half of Berthe and Harme Cleany. Cleana Harme. Harme is probably yeah. straightforward Harme. I'm, I'm trying to do Belgian on both of them, Cleany, Very which, good. which is unnecessary, <laughs> I think. Um, just to explain, if you would, the, the, the title of the, ex, as the exhibition, Null Punt, and I'm presuming it's Volk, is yeah, it? Yeah, it is. So Volk is for cloud and uh, Null Punt Volk is the overall, I suppose, title of our project, um, which, mean, which means zero point cloud in Dutch. Yeah. And Belgian, uh, part of Belgium speaks speak Dutch. Yeah. Um, and the project started in, in Belgium and it started literally just before the lockdown just before the first European lockdown. Um, and I met Philip in in uh, Ghent, which is a medieval city, and we were doing a residency there looking at different ways that artists could work together. So less working as a singular artist, more ways that uh, artists could share resources. And so we started to work together because we were both interested in history. And I suppose we were also interested in complicated spaces, spaces that have very multi-layered histories. I'm going to tweet an image now at RTE Arena. And and this, I'm presuming, is... Essentially, as it was in the Hugh Lane, and I'm yeah. sure this will be the case when it's shown at Tulka, it's it's like a table, but it's like a table. If you're what you really want to be doing is almost standing up on the ceiling, looking down at it. Exactly. So maybe you'd explain the image that I'm looking at here. It's part of the. It's part of the. So we've kind of made a modular structure that holds these tiles, and these tiles are basically they're called a bare earth visualization of landscape. So what we've done is we've chosen to actually. Uh, leave out buildings and leave out uh, vegetation. So what you get is you get a trace of uh, buildings. And is this is this a, a flat photographic it, image or it does is, it have contours within it? It is a flat photographic image printed as a resoprint, which is a kind of uh, print uh, that kind of has a little bit more. Um, it's a very tactile kind of mm. printing. So they look like you could touch them and they almost look like they're dust. And they also look a little bit like a 3D image. So they're kind of a weird kind of uh, halfway between a 3D thing and halfway between a flat thing. Yeah, so in some ways they look like, if you like, a model of this little bit of landscape. They look like that, even though it's a flat image. Yeah. But they also look like a a black and white photograph of that very space. Kind of a plan or a, a, a bird's eye view of the space. So the space that I'm looking at here. As you say, all of the buildings have been removed, yeah. but yet we can still see the traces of a road, of a yeah. railway line, you know, of a ring fort, it looks like to me, down yeah. in, in, in the corner. So are we looking right back in history at what's well, on the land? Or are you imagining we're that? Kind of, it's kind of a weird image in that it hovers between the future and the past. Mm. So we're seeing traces of things from the past, but then we're also seeing a little bit how the landscape could be different in the future. 
And when you say we're seeing these traces, have you imagined the traces or is the technology allowing you to see kind of almost back into the past uh, by the kind of resonances that are left? The technology is allowing us to see, um, it's a kind of technology, it uses uh, LIDAR. So LIDAR is called Light Image uh, detection and ranging so it used, it's a kind of scanning that's done of landscape with lasers and, and planes but basically it's also used by archaeologists to look at landscape and to see changes mm. and when you model it on a computer you use a pretend sun that's at 45 degrees so it puts extra shadows. So that's how I get this sense that it looks as if it's actually that there are contours that, yeah. that, that I could run my hand across it and that my hand would be moving up and down but it's the the pretend degree of the sun that, yeah. that's allowing that. And we're, and we're not actually seeing, I suppose we're not actually seeing a photograph, we're seeing something that a, a computer has modelled. Has, has made up in, yeah. in some ways. Why air bases? Because you started in Ghent, I think, with an yeah. air base and then obviously Baldonnell became um, the one that you I used I suppose we were interested because the the data that we use to model the stuff is actually captured by planes. So we ah, kind of right. saw it as a way of kind of looping back. It's kind of like recursive. Um, and then also the structure that we built is based on a diagram that we saw that like describes how the lasers work. So there are they kind of mm. are sending down four points of light that then ba- bounce back. So if you see the structure, it's kind of like it's it's almost like a, an inverted version of the diagram. I'm going to tweet another image now mm-hmm. uh, at RTE Arena and ironically this is in the very room that I will be in tomorrow night as part of our outside broadcast in the sculpture room in in the Hugh Lane Gallery. This was a, 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 a I'm saying a map but it's yeah. like a map of the Phoenix Park. This was a, a model or, or one of these images of the Phoenix Park that you made. Yeah and we also included uh, the kind of hinterland of the Phoenix mm. Park as well which is Dunsink which has a like a, which was a former city dump so there's an amazing big kind of, I suppose, lump on the map. Yeah. So we're really interested in spaces where I suppose there's, they're kind of a mixture of controlled spaces, but also spaces that are about to undergo change or are, or that have kind of also Mm. sites where there's been a lot of tension or different kinds of maybe conflict are also, even in everyday spaces, there's contested kind of territories. And, and does, the, does the technology help, if you like, can it pick up on, if it, can you give it a kind of data that it understands as a place where these kind of conflicts well, or I these type of resonances might be? It doesn't, it doesn't really, but it allows us to look at the world differently. Mm. So it allows us to, and I suppose we originally designed them, and this was way before the lockdown, as tools. So we thought that we could get people together around the map and just discuss spaces. Because a lot of the... For example, the um, airfield in Ghent would have a very interesting history as well because it was built by the Germans, but then it was never used as an airfield. So it's a kind of a, it was, it had one, I suppose, possible future that then never happened. So what you wanted as much as any was, because it is like a group of people, as I'm looking at the image in the the gallery, in the Hewlett Gallery at RTE Arena, if you want to see it, it is as if it's a group of people sitting around a table talking. You were as interested in the discussion as you were in the image. Very much so. And actually, we had such an exciting time because with the Hugh Lane, we were able to stay in the space over about four or five days. So we did a lot of conversations with people who came in. Um, And then with the... Um, with the map in Tulka, we were also there for the install. So um, 
we kind of had, yeah, part of, for exciting for us is dialogue. Yeah, and yeah. That's, that's very much part of it. And ironic that that all started during the, <laughs> the, the lockdown when we were almost exactly. unable to hold dialogue. At any rate, thanks for coming in to us, Cleana. That's Cleana Harmy. And Null Punt Volk, points of departure, attempts at orientation, will be at the Tulka Gallery in Galway. It's there until November the 20th. Tulka.ie for full details.